Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology and OCAV's board of view podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Amanda Redfern. Uh, each week, we take a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. Amanda, what are we reviewing this week? So I wanted to review LASIK flap interface complications, or otherwise known as DLK and things that look like DLK or diffuse lamellar keratitis. Yeah, I, I think this is hopefully really useful for a lot of residents to review because I don't, in all my training scenarios that I went through, there wasn't like a really heavy refractive component. So as a result, I really didn't see much refractive complications. Um, but, you know, we got to know it for the boards and in real life and everything. So hopefully this is useful to our average resident. Yeah, I can honestly say I've never seen any of this, but I know it exists. And yeah. I did think about it a lot when I got LASIK. Ah, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I actually didn't know you had LASIK. Thanks for revealing HIPAA information. Oh, yeah. You don't notice they <laughs> don't wear glasses anymore? I, I'm, I'm a very keen and astute clinical observer <laughs> that, holy crap. Uh, I just, you, I thought you were wearing contacts the whole time. Uh, okay. Let's start <laughs> with, let's start with the most, uh, I think the, the, the one that will require the most discussion in terms of flap interface complications from LASIK which is diffuse lamellar keratitis, or as we'll call from here on DLK. What is that? So DLK is a nonspecific sterile inflammatory response to a variety of insults that will happen when you're doing LASIK. So that could be mechanical insults or toxic insults from the chemicals that we put on the eye or anything that might be left behind, like little fibers from the surgical sponges or whatever. Basically, anything that irritates the anterior stroma can trigger a white blood cell accumulation or response to that uh, irritant. DLK is associated with many different risk factors or events that can happen during LASIK. Do you want to review some of those? Yeah. So uh, if you have an epi defect during your like initial procedure or an enhancement, that's a risk factor. Um, it can also happen after the initial LASIK um, if you had something like a corneal abrasion or, or even infectious keratitis can trigger an episode, a concomitant episode of, of DLK as well. For some reason, femto flaps have a higher incidence of DLK. I honestly, I don't know why, but. Yeah, it doesn't it, make sense noted. to me either. You'd think it would be kind of cleaner, but maybe something about the micro explosions that occur during femto. Uh, I, I, we would just be speculating why. Basically, the, the general principle though, besides with femto, is anything foreign that touches the flap interface, it can trigger it. So it could be meibomian gland secretions, like, you know, during the procedure, foreign material from the microkeratome, you know, the iodine that we use, the marking ink, etc. There's not supposed to be stuff in the flap interface. So all of that can trigger an immune response, like Amanda was saying. How would a patient know that they've had something like this? So they may have no idea that they have DLK in the beginning because it can be asymptomatic if it's really mild, but they may become aware of it if it is progressing to a later stage. And in those cases, they'll have decreased vision. And that leads me to the four stages of DLK. Yeah, this is something that I think gets could be asked on. Like it's one of the more high yield things to, to remember for uh, OCAPs and boards. So let's go through it. Four stages. Stage one is just peripheral faint white blood cells. That kind of has a granular appearance to it. Stage two is when those white blood cells start making it in a scattered pattern centrally. So starts from the outside, then comes to the central part. 
Stage three is when it's not just scattered white blood cells, but they're dense in the visual axis. They, you know, will generally have some visual, um, changes at, at this point. And then stage four is when they have scarring or even stromal melting from like, a, you know, the robust white blood cell reaction. So peripheral then does, um, kind of faint or scattered central effect then a dense central effect, and then the scarring is like the last stage of it. And I think some people describe this as like a Sands of Sahara kind of um, appearance. Is that right? That yeah. is what I remember too. Yeah. So if you see that, I, I think it's more of a clinical term that you might hear like your faculty talking about that Sands of Sahara keyword is, you know, it looks kind of sandy in the in the stromal interface. I don't know if they would ask, actually use that term in your OCAPs. From the pictures I've seen, I encourage everyone to look at pictures of this. It, you know, it's a decent description. That kind of sandy appearance. Okay, what do you do though when you find it with each of these stages? So it's easy to remember stage one and stage two. These are not as critical because they may or may not be visually significant. But again, that's the peripheral infiltration versus a little bit of scattered uh, central infiltration for stage two. And you're just going to frequently use topical steroids and just really try to get that inflammation down. It gets more complicated when we get to stage three and four where things are getting a lot more visually critical. So for stage three, you're going to lift that flap, irrigate, and then directly place steroids and NSAIDs in that bed to get that inflammation down. And then following that procedure, you're going to be treating them with intensive topical steroids. Some surgeons might even start oral steroids at this point. Stage four is very, very similar and honestly, in stage four, it's pretty severe. So you're just hoping for any improvement. But like we said, stage four includes like melting and scarring. So it's it's not a great prognosis. You're going to try anyway by lifting the flap, irrigating, direct placement of steroids and NSAIDs, intensive topical steroids afterwards, and oral steroids. Now, here comes the big catch. If you're not responding at all to steroids, especially if you have the earlier stages and it's been about seven to 10 days, you need to start considering other things that are mimicking this appearance of DLK. Such as infectious keratitis, which I think is our next uh, topic. And you know, that's a, that's a good general point, you know, Amanda, if you're treating someone with steroids, if they're not improving. And I, you know, I think this is a, a decent rule. Like in, in a lot, like if I have someone with simple anterior uveitis, I'm treating them for a week is how long I get them to respond to steroids and are not, you need to like rethink your diagnosis. Uh, and then definitely in this case, because infectious etiologies are on our differential. You know, obviously we don't want to see someone who has an issue with their LASIK flap and miss that it's actually infectious as opposed to an, um, uh, you know, an immune reaction like in DLK. Uh, can you kind of describe to us, Amanda, what, how, how would a patient present if they had infectious keratitis? So like with many eye infections, they're typically going to be symptomatic with eye pain and decreased vision. They can also have eye redness and photophobia. So that's not really a surprise. The most common infectious organism is going to be gram-positive bacteria, so staph or strep. But the thing to also consider is that you could have an atypical mycobacterium. And in that case, what are you using in your stains or cultures to determine if it is a mycobacterium? Yeah, you can do an AFB stain, SFS bacillus stain, or use Lowenstein Jensen medium to culture it. Good job. <laughs> yeah, totally knew that off the top of my head. <laughs> I mean, the big thing is, 
if you're suspicious for it, do the stain because that's going to come up way sooner than the the culture. But it doesn't hurt to do both because obviously you don't have 100% sensitivity when you're doing a stain. So doing the culture doesn't hurt, but the answer is faster with the stain. Yeah. Mycobacteria are like the worst when it comes to surgical infections. Um, okay, what do we <laughs> you say do? that like you're thinking of something. Uh, yeah, this is like... Re- <laughs> I don't want to share my PTSD with everyone. Uh, let's talk about treatment here. If you suspect it, you know, it, it's a bacteria in a sort of enclosed space, like, you know, a LASIK flap interface. So, uh, initially what you want to do is you want to lift the flap, culture the interface while you're, while you're there, irrigate the heck out of it with antibiotics and then do, you know, topical, um, treatment afterwards. Uh, you know, fourth generation fluoroquinolones are usually the choice, though, you know, BCAC notes for us that monotherapy not, may not be enough, um, with, with these kinds of infections. Um, but what if that doesn't work, Amanda? Do you know, is there anything else that can be done? So this is actually really scary sounding, but if it doesn't work, then you may need to amputate the flap to improve the penetration of your antimicrobials. That's going to be one heck of a conversation with a patient. Yeah, I probably if you're a resident on call, I probably wouldn't go for that right away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know these are things you staff with surgeons and all and all that, but uh, that's an option. You know, if it shows up on your boards. Uh, okay, we've talked about infectious keratitis and diffuse lamellar keratitis. They kind of sound similar-ish, and it's critical because you know, in one you treat with steroids, the other one treat with antibiotics. Uh, how do we differentiate between them, Amanda? Should we go through it? Do you want to be DLK or IK? Okay, I'll, I'll do the IK ones. Okay. Let's talk about onset. So DLK, roughly, when does that usually start? So DLK is usually visible within the first 24 hours, whereas IK... Yeah, is, IK is usually a couple days post-op with like basically any infection, right? It usually takes two or three days for it to inoculate and you know, grow and become a problem, just like endophthalmitis and all these other ones. Um, keep in mind, they could be a week or more later too, especially with atypical mycobacteria, harder to grow. So it takes longer for them to um, become clinically apparent. In terms of appearance, DLK will begin in the flat periphery and then will work its way inward. So you'll see more intensity of the uh, specks or the white blood cells in the periphery and less so in the center until it gets to later stages. Yeah. And IK, it can really occur anywhere under the flap, wherever the infection, you know, pops up because, you know, I'm sure there are some white cells that we're seeing, but some of it's the infection too. You know, remember in DLK, it starts typically starts in periphery and comes towards the center because white blood cells come from the limbal periphery and then migrate in. Um, you know, but in IK, it doesn't, you know, the infection is where the infection is. That's a great point. In terms of layers, the DLK will be primarily confined to that interface. So you want to do a really good slit lamp exam and get that cross section of the cornea to see where the inflammation is within. Well, within the thickness of the cornea. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it should be pretty clear, right, on slit lamp exam. And an IKAD would start, you know, um, you know, at the interface, but it can go above, it can go below, it can go beyond the flap edge. You know, it won't follow the rules. It would just probably start within the interface. But you, you know, you may not be able to tell on your exam. What about the AC, Amanda? Do you typically get like a robust AC inflammation with DLK? So there should be minimal to no anterior chamber reaction in DLK. 
right? Any infectious keratitis, any like corneal ulcer, you can get, you know, a mild to moderate AC reaction. And then in terms of flap melts, either one can give you a flap melt. Yeah, don't use that to differentiate between the two. So, you know, I think um, in terms of kind of relating this to other ideas within ophthalmology, I, I kind of think of DLK as really similar to TAS, toxic anterior segment syndrome, which happens usually, it's similar within the first 24 hours or so after cataract surgery. And we think it's a similar mechanism, you know, surgical debris or, you know, something maybe contaminated that was used during the cataract surgery causes a robust inflammatory response that's treated well by steroids. And it starts early on, um, like, you know, should be, you know, like the day one visit, you should be able to see that reaction. And it's also, you always have to try to figure out and differentiate it from endophthalmitis from cataract surgery. So I would view DLK and IK as analogous to TAS, toxic interior segment syndrome, and, and you know, cataract surgery associated endophthalmitis. And that helps you kind of conceptualize and bend these, bend these separately. But okay, I think... Those are like kind of the big ones. Um, what other conditions should we know about that can happen with the flap interface, Amanda? So a highly testable one and maybe less obvious, but can be sometimes mistaken for DLK is pressure-induced stromal keratopathy or otherwise known as PISC, at least from this point on PISC. in this podcast. Yeah, it's a fun, fun one to say, PISC. I know. It, for some reason, are you a Spider-Man fan? Yeah. It reminds me of Fisk, yeah. and he has like the big yeah. belly. Yeah, Wilson and... Fisk. Yeah, it's, that's a yeah, that's actually a great. Wow, I love it. Well, let's, let's go into why the big belly thing can. Uh, if you don't know, Wilson Fisk is also known as the Kingpin. I don't know that arch enemy of uh, Spider Man and Daredevil typically, though he, you know, is a prominent in the Marvel universe. Anyways, we can. <laughs> yeah, let's highly recommend the Vincent D'Onofrio version. Oh but, my gosh, he's so good. Right? Okay. Getting back to PISC. So this usually presents about 10 to 14 days after surgery. And it comes from having elevated post-op IOP for a prolong, from prolonged steroids, leading to all this pressure and a formation of a fluid cleft at that flap interface. And that fluid cleft can give you some corneal haze. Hence the big belly of PISC. Yeah. Yeah. It gives it. Yeah. That, that, that belly. Um, and I think a key, because this is really just like, quote, steroid-induced glaucoma, you know, which you, I think, I, I don't know if you've done an episode on it, but you know, it's a common thing that can happen with any steroids. But the key is that when you check the pressure, especially with applanation, it may be artifactually low because that kind of, like, if you could applanate the stroma without the flap being there, then you would probably get the accurate pressure. But because of that kind of belly formation where you have fluid between the the flap and the stroma, it makes it seem artifactually low. Like you're like checking the pressure of like a water bag as opposed to the actual eye. So it may be confusing, you know, why they might have some pain or, 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 you know, worse vision. You may be thinking of DLK or something when if you do a good exam and see that there's that fluid buildup, you'll know it's PISC instead. So Amanda, are there better ways to measure besides applanation to try to get around this problem? Yes. This is one case where actually Tonopen is recommended over applanation, which yeah. is probably the only time I could think of that. <laughs> they recommend that you should be tonopening or even using a nomo, sorry, pneumotonometer. And yeah. you want to check the pressure both centrally and peripherally. So you're not being tricked by that artifact, but the, these methods are less prone to the artificial lowering effect than applanation is. 
Yeah, I, I bet an eye care would work too in terms of like checking peripherally because I find with an eye care it's easier to check peripherally. But I don't think it's in our textbook. So yeah, I, you know, if you're on call, you could think about using that. I think. And then what do we do? No one's meeting on call. Oh, I guess What's you would it? if they're calling after hours and you're seeing them in clinic. Yeah. I'm thinking you know, about the ED. I'm like, clinic. I am not using an ED slit lamp to applicate. Yeah, that's how you cause IK, right? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. All the milieu of the ED environs right on the post-surgical eyeball. Um, okay, we found it. We've, we're like, oh, yeah, you know, centrally it's pressure is 10, but peripherally it's like 50. Uh, what do you do now, Amanda? This is the key, as opposed to DLK, where you're using lots of steroids, you want to rapidly stop steroids as safely as you can in these patients because you want to bring down that pressure-induced glaucoma or IOP elevation. And then as you're waiting for that pressure to come down, you're using glaucoma drops to help lower the IOP. Yeah. You know, treat it like a steroid-induced glaucoma, basically. So Yeah. Cool. Okay. So that's uh, PISC. What else can happen? To the interface? Epithelial ingrowth. Oh, epithelial ingrowth. Before we go more into this, I do want to make a small distinction for residents where, like, I was really confused with this, like, especially in early residency, that epithelial ingrowth is, we're going to talk about, it refers to like LASIK flap interface, but there's a separate thing that most people term epithelial downgrowth. But like in some texts, they also call it epithelial ingrowth, where the epithelium gets inside the eye and it can cause glaucoma and grow and like proliferate inside the eye and, and do kinds of all kinds of crazy things. But that's, that's distinct from what we're about to talk about, which is epithelial cells getting under the flap interface and not inside the eye. I, I wish that we were clearer in like more texts and, and literature that downgrowth I prefer the term downgrowth, meaning it goes into the eye. Like, you know, usually through like a surgical wound and your corneal epithelium starts or, or, or I guess conjunctal epithelium can start growing into the eye and then proliferating and, you know, causing all kinds of problems. But that's not what we're talking about now. Uh, that's a great distinction. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. No, yeah. I just, I remember being like super confused by that as a resident. Like, how are these the same? Like, what, what's going on? So that's, uh, that's the distinction. Uh, how often does this happen, though, with LASIK, Amanda? Not very often. It's less than 3% of eyes, and it doesn't have to be visually significant or anything super intense. So it may also not go notice for a while. Yeah. Are there risk factors for it happening? Why, indeed, there are. Um, the big one is having an epithelial defect at the time of the procedure, and I think the theory behind this is that when you have an epithelial defect and you have local swelling around that area, that interface between the flap and the stroma where it's trying to reconnect is not well aligned because you have one side of that joint being swollen and not one to one. Yeah. And then it's probably the, you know, the limbal. Uh, the epithelial stem cells as they march from the limbus into the center probably just crawl under that, you know, interface yeah. when it's not well, well opposed. Um, how, how would patients know they have it? So they can be asymptomatic and just never know unless you point it out to them. Or if it's really bad, they can have severe vision loss. So it is a spectrum. 
Yeah. I mean, and the vision loss can come from things like just a regular astigmatism. You know, if you have like this kind of sheet of cells and like one, usually it's not like 360 around, it's, you know, one quadrant or so of the, of the cornea that can give them some irregular astigmatism. If it does cross a visual axis, it can blur their vision just by having this kind of like light gray, you know, sheet coming across, um, the, the corneal interface. Uh, or it can cause flat melting actually, you know, when, when it's like very severe. So what do we do about it? Well, nothing if it's not bad. If it's just isolated nests of epithelial cells in the periphery that aren't really advancing or affecting the vision, you just leave it be. If you are starting to have complications from it, like Ben listed, then you could lift the flap, scrape the epi from the underside of the flap, and then the stromal bed as well, because you really just want to get all those cells off and then reposition the flap. If it does reoccur, you can keep doing that procedure over and over again. It doesn't sound like that would be a fun experience for anyone involved. Things that you could do, though, for the recurrence that might be different from just lifting and cleaning and repositioning the flap would be maybe suturing or gluing at that edge to really make sure things are well opposed and sticking together and in position to heal. Some people even treat the that stromal bed with alcohol to really get rid of any remaining epithelial cells. And there's some people who yag these. That sounds really difficult and scary. So I don't think we'll talk too much about it, but it's like reported. Yeah, it was reported in just early cases, not like yeah. these terribly complex ones where you're definitely going to be lifting. Yeah, so it's an option out there. So that's epithelial and growth uh, as it relates to LASIK uh, flaps. The last thing we'll talk about is just interface debris. You know, this is kind of along the same spectrum as DLK, I think. If stuff gets into the, you know, interface, maybe it's like post-op, you know, the flop dehiscence or something like that, then they can get inflammation from that. So those kind of things are going to be like lint or nondescript particles, even tiny metal particles from like the blade, which is just mind-blowing to me. But anyway... Any any of that stuff can actually wind up in the interface. And it's not actually necessarily going to cause an inflammatory reaction like we see in DLK sometimes, or oftentimes it's well tolerated. Yeah. Blood of things, the other thing to know about, you know, you're cutting things, you can get blood uh, during a surgery. A small amount of blood is like usually not a problem. It'll just kind of go away over time. But a lot of blood has inflammatory cells within it and can trigger that response. So if you have a lot of blood, usually the advice is to try to make sure you get it out and get that hemostasis at the time of the, the LASIK uh, procedure. You know, we see a similar thing, not to relate everything to retina, but you know, if you leave a lot of blood on like a retinal tear, then it can cause a pro-inflammatory response and cause, you know, proliferative vitreoretinopathy in that area too, because blood has, you know, all these like, you know, all the inflammatory cytokines are in the blood, right? So it can cause those issues. So you tend to not want to leave a ton of blood on your surfaces <laughs> when you're doing surgery. Pro tip. Pro pro tip. Pro tip. Cool. I think that's it. Yeah. Should we do a quick review? Yeah. So first thing, DLK, an inflammatory reaction to LASIK at the interface in four stages where one and two are peripheral versus central just scattered white blood cells and you treat those with steroids, whereas three and four, you definitely got to go back in there and clean things up and treat aggressively with anti-inflammatories. 
Yeah, don't forget about infectious keratitis that can cause, that's usually caused by staph or other gram-positive organisms. We have to keep atypical mycobacteria in mind, which you would detect with a acid fast um, stain or lonesine gensum culture. And in that case, you always treat and blast them with antibiotics. Yes, and DLK will be more apparent early on in the course, usually within the first 24 hours, whereas IK bacteria takes time to bruise, so you're thinking about it a few days out. Yeah. PISC or pressure-induced thermal keratopathy is really just steroid-induced uh, glaucoma in, in the setting of LASIK, but you'll have artifactually low pressures because it builds up a fluid cleft in your LASIK flap interface. So you have to check around it using usually tonopen or even a pneumotonometer to, f- to figure out what the pressure situation is. And then epithelial ingrowth is just ingrowth of epithelial cells at that uh, flap interface. It can be very mild or it can be pretty profound, in which case you're going to also go in and lift that flap and do some cleanup. Last, you can get debris in your interface. Look careful if you have a patient who has some inflammatory reaction and has a LASIK flap. It could be lint or like random particles that end up in there. And that's all we have for this week. If you like what you heard, you can get a rating review on iTunes or wherever you found us is really helpful for our podcast. And um, we appreciate your support uh, as we have come back to trying to do regular episodes. Thanks for your time. Bye. Bye.